My my gain looks a little low on the visual. Oh, your gain is looking do I, do low. Do I sound okay? You sound great. I mean, just like you were saying, you sound great to me, but I don't know if that's... Okay. Maybe my gain's just looking paltry next to your new... Next to my new found... <laughs> okay, I'm... My gain's yeah, now healthy. you're back. You're back on it yeah. again. Okay. okay. All right. Oh my god. Um, such a dummy. No one should trust me to do any. Like it's it is so embarrassing. Like, <laughs> it's, like it's literally the volume button, and like that's been the problem this whole time. Oh my god. Hi, Christopher. Hey, Liz. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm excited. We're going to continue our discussion from last time because it was way too short. We have, there is so much pop culture to get through. Yeah. Um, but before we get to all that, I want to know what's top of mind for you today. Top of mind is pandemic parenting. <gasps> yes. Which I'm late to the game here. Um, <laughs> but of course, I have many friends, you included, who have done, I don't know how you've done it. And I've been saying it. I don't know how parents have done it over the pandemic, mm -hmm. losing daycares, losing schools, um, and just trying to, you know, parent kids during this whole time. Mm -hmm. It's one thing to say it. And it's another yeah. thing to like get a glimpse of it. And I got a glimpse of it this past week. So this past week, uh, mm -hmm. my partner and I were thrust into emergency babysitting duties mm -hmm. um her sister was giving birth to their second child mm. and so we you know to kind of like take the burden off we took their first child who's about three almost four years old uh-huh we took her for a week basically a week yeah we took her for a week so that's a long time we got the whole week like weekday like we got her on a monday we returned her on a sunday okay yeah so she um, stayed with you. She stayed with us. And okay. we were the primaries. Um, wow. But, so it was the two of us. And then we had the support from my partner's parents as well. So four adults, one child. To one child. Amazing. Which is a great ratio to be able to handle this, right? Truly. And yes, yeah, so it's true. Like having the four of us kind of being there, trying like triangulating care was very, very useful. Mm -hmm. Having said that, I got nothing done. Uh-huh. <laughs> no work was done. I every night I went to sleep. I went to sleep probably at like 10 p.m., which is very unusual for me. Mm -hmm. I usually sleep at like 1 a.m., but mm -hmm. I'd be like going to sleep at like 10 30 or 11. I'd be exhausted mm -hmm. just beyond measure. Mm -hmm. I'd wake up and I just like I'd wake up in maybe like a panic. Oh my you know? god. Or, or there'd be sounds that late at night, like she has to go to the bathroom or something. And I'm just like, I realized that I was just like on high alert, you know, when I'm sleeping. Yeah. And then, yes. And then like, it was all consuming. Because the thing is like, even though we were taking turns while I'm doing work, I have this like pocket of like two hours during her nap or mm -hmm. one hour when someone else is watching her mm -hmm. or something and it's all fragmented and broken. Yeah. Yep. And when I'm working, I feel ultimately, I just feel guilty that I'm not doing my part. Yeah. Right. And then, mm -hmm. and then all the times that she would, you know, jump into my room and then like want to play and then the guilt of saying, Oh, I got to work and all this. And all of it took such a toll. Like by the time we gave her back and now, you know, my partner's like sister has two children, two kids. One that doesn't sleep at night and one yep. that doesn't sleep during the day. And yep. I'm like, how, how is that possible yeah. like from a physical standpoint? How is mm -hmm. that done? Mm -hmm. And then you got to balance work on top of that. I did no work. No work got done. And that's with mm -hmm. four adults watching one child. Yeah. And I just, it, you know, the thing is, I knew there was an end point. Yeah. I knew that Sunday we're giving her back and we're we're back to being free mm -hmm. and the, the funniest thing is on sunday night after we gave her back i went mm -hmm. to sleep the deepest mm -hmm. sleep i've ever had <laughs> and i had probably the most vivid nightmare i've ever had in my oh, life like no we were all at a baseball game uh -huh. this is me yeah i was with my partner's niece i was with her whole family and we we're on to a baseball game i went to take her to um 
the concessions to get something. And I turn around and she's gone. Oh, she's no. You had a full-on parenting nightmare. I did. Oh and this is God. after I had returned her. And I was, like, looking for her. And I was, like, you know, like, I was so... Like the, my big thing was I was like scared of what her family was going to think of me now that I lost this oh, baby. Oh, yeah. And then I woke up in like just a cold sweat. Like oh I was just God. like drenched in sweat. And I was like, and that had to be somewhere in the subconscious, right? Because this mm-hmm. is after I've given back the child. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'm now I can relax. But apparently my subconscious was like still like wired for high alert. Yeah. And I'm like, wow. I just... How do you do it? I mean, like we built routines and mm-hmm. that helped. Like we mm-hmm. knew what time everything was and we kind of like regulated based on that. Yeah. Um, and that was the only way. And then we pieced together like, you know, one hour of TV or like one hour of iPad games. Yeah. Or, you know, <laughs> screen like, time. Screen time. <laughs> the screen time life raft. Yeah. And then we're just piecing together the hours until nap time and then from nap time to sleep time. Yeah. Like, oh, oh, Chris, you got to That's what that's what it's like. You got a real taste for what it's like. Um, but yeah, no, I think that like what you've described, I mean, I feel it on every level, but also like it goes to show that like childcare really is a workforce issue mm. because if you have kids in the house and you are even remotely attuned to them as you are, like you just can't get anything done. Yeah. And if you, if you get, you have at best like one to two hour increments and you can't get shit done in one to two, get two like as soon right. as you get into a groove, your time is up. Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's just relentless. Mm-hmm. It's truly relentless. I remember, and it was around day seven after after I brought after we brought our first kid home, when like I woke up, you know, like the seventh shitty night of sleep in a row, and I was like, "When do we get a break? Like, when do I get to sleep in?" And the answer is, you don't. <laughs> especially, you know, when they're that young, you real that that's not an option. Especially, and also especially when you're the mom, like you don't have the option of doing that. So this is why like play dates are so key. Like we're at the age now, like my kids are now old enough. My youngest is about the age of your partner's niece um, where like we can get together with other kids and they will run off Mm -hmm. and like they will play together. And like, then the parents can actually just like have a conversation and that's the fucking best. (laughs) Like (laughs) they're happy. We're happy. Like, it's so nice to be in a place where that's the case. And unfortunately, your partner sister is now having is at that place with the older child, but now having to start over again with the younger child. Um, but it is, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm 100. This is why like play, play groups, play dates are essential, even if you are not particularly crazy about the other parents, because Mm -hmm. you just need them to like go and like hang out together. So like you can have a minute. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I get it. No, I don't get it because it was only a weekend or it was only a week and there was an exit date and I'm like, back to my life now. Yeah. Yeah. We could talk about this for an entire episode, really. (laughs) That was top of mind. Basically, my top of mind was parents, again, amazing. Like, I just, I bow down. (laughs) And the crazy thing is that, like, the whole of human civilization depends on this very thing, right? Yeah. Like, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. The majority of people do this at some point. It's crazy. I just, yeah, it blows my mind. It's so bananas. <sighs> All right. What's top of mind for you, Liz? Well, on a very different note, uh-huh. um, I was with my family this weekend for my father's 75th birthday. Oh, happy birthday. Um, yeah, it was it was wonderful. So like my brother and his partner came in. So we surprised him for the weekend and it was great. It, we just like and it was one of instead of like us being everywhere and like running out to see our own friends or whatever, like we really made a point to just stay home and hang out together doing the things that my dad likes to do, which is um, eat and hang out with his grandkids and watch TV of all kinds with his family. (laughs) So we watched so much TV. It was awesome. But one of the things we started together was Succession. Wow. I've heard so much about this show. Have you seen it? I have not. Okay. So like you, I'd heard a lot about it and I was like, I don't, I cannot imagine a universe in which I would watch this show because it is everything I hate, right? Mm-hmm. It is rich, white, capitalist billionaires who are all terrible people clamoring for power. Like, mm-hmm. in my limited time for consuming media, I do not see a universe in which I watch this. 
But then um, my brother watches it and my spouse had started it. And I honestly don't know how we started playing it. But first episode, I was like, we we need to keep going. And that <laughs> is crazy because it is truly everything I hate. And I hate every last one of the characters. Yeah. And in the past when this has happened, like with girls, I, I was like, we're never doing this again. But with Succession, I was like, I'm, I'm in. I'm locked in. Wow. Um, because the acting is so good. The writing is incredible. Um, and just the commentary that it's making is like completely in line with my beliefs, actually. So even though it is uh, about rich white capitalist billionaires, it's also about how they're they're the worst, most terrible people and like their families are deeply dysfunctional and like money fucks up everything you know what I mean? yeah. so yeah i mean like the perform the, the um the the patriarch it's kind of like loosely based on the murdoch family mm-hmm. and um you know it's like the the patriarch owns this media empire and like all of his children are competing for power as he like you know nears the end of his life and they're you know planning succession um, but the performances from the patriarch who's played by Brian Cox, who was just like a next level actor. Um, and then the second son in particular is played by Jeremy Strong. And he's like the heir apparent, but he's also like deeply flawed and like deeply insecure and like keeps getting in his own way. Like this actor, like the way that he portrays vulnerability, like He's act. He's he's playing a person who is pretending to be powerful, but is actually deeply insecure. You know, and the mm-hmm. the fact that he's able to communicate all of that, it's just it's like a it's a tour de force. Wow. So anyway, um, it's fantastic, and I'm only two episodes deep, so uh, it's early yet. But I wow, that's a lot of enthusiasm for two episodes. Truly, truly. Oh, and another thing that makes it so good too, it's um. It's produced by Will Ferrell and Adam McKay. Will Ferrell, the comedian Will Ferrell. Will Ferrell, the comedian Will Ferrell, and Adam McKay, the comedic director Adam McKay, who Whoa, did like okay. Step Brothers, among others. And so <laughs> it is also fucking hilarious. Like there, it's like pitch black comedy, but there are moments that are just laugh out loud funny, like played with such gravity by these actors. And it is, I think it's also that too. And the music is so good. Like truly every aspect of this show is so well executed. So anyway, if you're interested in a show about terrible rich white billionaires, I mean, this is this is the one for you. <laughs> well, that's the thing that would chase me. I mean, I've definitely had my eye on the show and I've been wanting to watch it. Um, but yeah, like that's the thing. It's like I'm in this weird phase where I'm like only look for, looking for like happy shows, you know, mm-hmm. like happy mm-hmm. characters and positive. I think like I'm still recovering from the trauma of the Trump years. Sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. During the Trump years, I feel like like every movie that had some misanthropic, terrible character, mm-hmm. I'm like, I you don't deserve my attention. Yeah, cause, not for because that's life. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Maybe we're in a moment, or maybe I'm in a moment where I can handle a little bit of darkness as long as it's mm-hmm. laced with lots of humor. <laughs> and um, here we are. So okay, maybe yeah. dipping that toe back in that water, right? Yeah. Yeah, you're you're zooming ahead, like you're you're paving the trail for me in my like all of my like uh media consumption basically i'm really honored that you take my requ- my recommendation seriously because i oh, feel yeah. like every show that i've mentioned yeah you've invested literal hours and days into watching i mean you're you're my entertainment weekly oh uh, can i say that's the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me <laughs> Um, but that's actually the perfect segue too into our what we want to talk about today, which is like we got into like this pop culture grab bag reviewing the last like six months since we've been off, but there's so many things that we didn't get to cover. So we're gonna yeah. keep going and we're gonna keep talking about all of the things that have happened. And this is all the stuff we're talking about is like more in the last like it this is like the more recent stuff, maybe. Yeah. Um, but my first and most important question for you is, did you read Bad Art? Did you finish Bad Art Friend? I did. I did finish Bad Art Friend. I've had multiple conversations about it. There are layers upon layers. So many layers. And we finally get to talk about it. Okay. So the piece is about two writers. One of them is named Don Dorland. She's a writer 
who is so far not particularly successful. Um, and she's had a very traumatic past. And she that's made her um, empathetic in her words. And she decided in her great empathy that she was going to donate one of her kidneys anonymously. So not even to a specific person, but she was to, to anyone who needed it. And she like kind of made it this thing where she like started a Facebook group of all of her friends so she could keep them posted. And in one of them, she ended up, she shared, shared a letter that she'd written to this like anonymous recipient of her kidney. One of the friends that was in that group is another writer named Sonia Larson, who is um, considerably more su- successful than Dawn is. Um, and... Um, Dawn is like very disturbed that Sonia never responds or provides any kind of like uh, reinforcement for her kidney donation. And um, then Sonia writes a short story about a white woman who donates her kidney anonymously. And what are the chances? What are the chances? Uh, And then Dawn feels very offended by this because she feels like um, Sonia has stolen her story. And Sonia says, I'm an artist. I am allowed to write about whatever I want to write about. And uh, the article um, gets into the wild places that this conflict goes. So and the title of the piece is Who is the Bad Art Friend? Who here is at fault? And I'm wondering, Chris, mm. who do you think is the bad art friend? So are we doing this as like Team Larson versus Team Dorland? Uh, it doesn't have to be. It can be It can be more nuanced than that if you want. I mean, there are a lot of nuances, but it's funny that I ended up in a very surprisingly non-nuanced space. Interesting. Tell yes. me. I am firmly Team Larson on this. Okay. Tell me everything. <laughs> well, I mean, again, I don't want to overstate it. I think there, I think Don Dorland has a lot of legitimate grievances here. Sure. And her feelings about it. Like I, if I were in her shoes, I would totally, I would totally, you know, and I think, I, I think like Larson also acknowledges that, you know, she can understand why Dorland would be upset, mm-hmm. but you know, like she's a writer and she's going to write. Mm-hmm. I also think Larson, you know, like the, the 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 bad art friend piece goes into this part where Larson had like almost word for word plagiarized one of the letters uh-huh. that Dorland wrote. Yeah. And that was, I think, too far. Yes. So having said all that, um, I think she nails... Like, I, I think the art that she produced is worth it. Mm. And not to say that there are no ethics around it, but I think that whatever, whatever, like, um, what's it? Whatever, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Transgressions she made in this case, and she made some ones. I consider them minor mm. compared to what she produced. Hmm. Because I think the thing that she was writing about, like, was powerful, poignant, and really, really hit on themes that resonate with me. As yeah. A, and, you know, I think we should mention as well that, you know, Sonia Larson is uh, Asian American. Yes. And uh, Don Dorland is a white woman. Mm-hmm. And the story is about, like, white savior, mm-hmm. you know, um, type of, you know, sentiments and stuff. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, yeah, that's kind of how I feel about it. But yeah, sorry, what were you going to ask? Oh, just an- and another layer of that is basically a white woman coming in and telling a writer of color that she cannot tell the story the way that she wants to tell it. Yes, yes. So and again, layer. like, yeah, that's another layer of it. I mean, there's so many those layers uh, on top of it. I just, I could see where Don Dorland was coming from, but all the mm-hmm. litigation she brought, mm-hmm. like showing up at one of her like talks. Yeah, it was stalker shit. Yeah, yeah. And I kind of feel, well, I'll just leave it there. I just want to hear like what you thought about all of this and like where you land. Oh, man, I land with team no one. Um, (laughs) 
which is like the least satisfying answer. I if I if forced to choose, I feel yeah. like I lean. I do. I have so many more reasons to be on Team Larson, right? Uh-huh. Because Don Dorland sounds like a fucking nightmare. I mean, I have compassion for her because she clearly had a very traumatic childhood. Yes. She almost certainly has some kind of personality disorder. Um, and so I think that there's a lot that like she's a product of her circumstances. And I think that there's a lot that like in her in terms of her personality that just kind of been locked in through no fault of her own. Um, also, you know, Larson is Asian American and there is a lot about there's a I have so many feelings about white women in particular coming in and telling women of color how they need to be in the world and how they need to tell their stories like um I have a lot of sympathy for that too. And like the fact that, you know, like Don went through so many steps to basically make life hell for Larson in terms of like stopping her short story from being published and calling like editors and telling them about play. You know what I mean? Just making mm-hmm. things truly terrible for her yeah. showing up at her readings now, like a real stalker. Like I, I, um, I have a lot of sympathy for that too, but, and just the fact that she like, brings all these lawsuits so that, you know, that way she could uncover all the text messages that Sonia has sent to her friends about the story. Like it's, it's true madness. Right. Mm -hmm. And then how deeply unfortunate that in the process of discovery, a text message comes out where actually it shows that an early, like it shows that Sonia admits that she lifted the letter in an early version of the story that was published online so she gets rewarded basically for her insanity and she gets all of her like almost paranoid thoughts confirmed. But at the end of the day, I'm like, by her own admission, Sonia Larson lifted the the letter. Mm-hmm. She changed it later, which mm-hmm. good, but not before it had been published and not before she had like profited off, off of it, you know? Mm-hmm. So I really desperately want to be Team Larson. Mm-hmm. But I think at the end of the day, uh, even by her own admission, she lifted it. And now I feel like, you know, she, even though that's come to light, she's still doubling down on this. Like I'm an artist and I'm allowed to interpret things the way that I want to. And that's all true. But like, you, you can't fucking plagiarize other people's writing. So I thought that raised an interesting question though, because I think there was part, part of the piece asks like, cause the letter itself was not, it's just an epistle. It's not like, it's right. not like something that was published as a piece of art. It Correct. was just a correspondence. It's like an email, right? right. Mm-hmm. And I think Larson was explaining it like there were phrases within that letter. I mean, it's like the perfect letter, right? Mm-hmm. It's like the perfect letter that encapsulates the thing that you're going for, mm-hmm. which is this like white savior flourish, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so yes, I agree that it was wrong. But then I think there is that important nuance that this was not 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 like a part of a short, like creative short story fiction thing that Dorland wrote that Larson lifted, that it was Hmm. a letter. And I'm not sure that distinction is all that important to a lot of people, but for me, it does cast some nuance to the whole plagiarism claim. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like what happened was Sonia, because she says she was like, the letter is so good, I couldn't change it, which is like (laughs) kind of bullshit. You know what I mean? She puts it in and then she like kind of... over the course of time, she ends up changing it in part because Don is like harassing her, right? right? But I feel like in some ways, like that she has cemented, like Larson has cemented in her own mind this narrative that like she's right, she she that she was right, you know what I mean? That she was justified. And I feel like she's like kind of like distorting. I mean, and I've done this, I've been guilty of this myself. Mm-hmm. So I say this like as somebody who also is has you know is prone to this but like i feel like she is now like kind of like bending the narrative a little bit to be like i'm totally justified in i mean she doesn't even acknowledge in the in the article that she straight up plagiarized that letter yes and, and i so, feel like she she could have i mean the thing she is like she, her her short story piece didn't need that letter verbatim right to do it and the fact that she went back and kind of like because she heard about like the claims of plagiarism that she then switched up that letter mm-hmm. shows to me that she saw that letter as probably the only thing that was problematic in what she yes. was doing. Right, right, right. Um, 
but she's probably i think like larson's probably making a larger point like the the larger truth here is a piece about like her artistic like like license and you know freedom to to draw from real life yeah and then yeah and then these like minor again i think she sees these things as like minor infractions that okay fine i'll go back and change the letter a little bit right right just right. be on the up and up you know yeah that's a really good point they, they, it seems like they are arguing different things yeah. right where like yeah. larson is trying to make this bigger point about like i'm allowed to write about whatever i want to write about and Doralyn's thing is like you fucking plagiarize this letter <laughs> so <laughs> they're dying on different hills basically but you know on a different level and that's what, what i loved about this piece uh, and I love this thing about like I, I think at some point they brought up that whole dress that you know some people yes. see as blue and some people yes. see as gold. That uh-huh. was a very meta moment in the whole thing. But I think like you, so many you you could look at this piece in so many different ways. And there was this whole other like subtext of so Larson is really popular. It's very clear that she's very popular and plugged in among the writing circles, and they're all friends and they all have each other's backs. And it's clear that Dorland is not accepted within that clique. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the p- more painful things, I think, from Dorland's perspective is in Discovery finding out that all of these writers who she thought were friends or, mm-hmm. you know, like generous writers were all basically like talking shit mm-hmm. about her. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is very painful. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I'm like, these are, I think at some point, like Cel- Celeste Ng makes an appearance yeah. and she's like a friend of Larson's. And, you know, all of these are writers, some of the most intuitive, I mean, I don't want to put them on a pedestal, but like writers tend to be very like insightful, prescient people that, you know, are insightful. They're not above petty pettiness, Correct. obviously. And I think Correct. that there is some pettiness within this like whole exchange. Mm-hmm. But also to me, there's a little bit of like, it's kind of a red flag for me if like this group of people has like completely taken Larson's side on this. Mm-hmm. And like, just been like, okay, like Dorland is way off base here. Mm-hmm. That to me has some credibility in my eyes. And part of this, like one way you can look at this story is just like hurt feelings from an in-group, like uh, from a person in the out of an in-group. Mm. And like a lot of just like a lot of the fallback, fallout happening as a result of those hurt feelings. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. And I feel that, God, I feel, I feel myself on both sides of that, right? Yeah. Like I have been Don Dorland yeah. being like, oh my God, wh- why is everyone hanging out without me? You know, and yeah, like not even worse, sad. as you yeah. said, like the t- actively talking shit about it's everyone's worst nightmare, basically, that your it so-called is. friends are actually, um, actually think that you're a joke. Yeah. Um. But and, and I've also been I've also been Sonia Larson and I've mm-hmm. also been Celeste Ng and like um yeah I feel I feel both sides of that. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. it makes me it does make my heart ache for Dorland. Yeah. Like nobody wants to be in that position and I I feel a great deal of empathy for her. Mm-hmm. Um but then putting on the other hat like I have been part of a group where you know there's a person who the group considers, you know, toxic or mm-hmm. problematic mm-hmm. or like, and the group gets together, not necessarily to talk shit. And that's the way Dorland would see it, but sort of to be like, Hey, let's put our minds together and figure out what's going on with this person. Yeah. You know? Like what, yeah. what is this, what, what's going on here? You know? And I, I feel like my, my overarching after reading it, like mostly what I feel is sad because no one comes out looking good at the yeah. end of this. Right. Don Dorland. I mean, from what I understand, Don herself pitched the story to the writer. Um, but like she she does not come out looking good. And she's no. she's famous now, like we're, everyone's talking about her, but like she does not come off looking good. I don't know who is going to want to work with somebody who would be willing to go to such lengths if they feel if their feelings get hurt, right? To basically sabotage the career of um who they perceive as the perpetrator. Um, Sonia Larson doesn't come out looking great because she acknowledges that she lifted this letter, right? Yeah. Um, and she comes off like kind of a mean girl. And mm-hmm. Celesting is amazing. Um, but like you know, also I, I'm sure has like her reputation has been sullied by this. Mm-hmm. And I just it just made me really sad. It also made me, I think that the whole like yellow dress, blue dress thing, like that to me is the value of this story. 
Um, because otherwise it's like basically like inside baseball draw without that, it would just be like inside baseball gossip magazine fodder. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> yeah. this is like kind of a page six story that um because it had this like blue dress, yellow dress part that was actually very interesting, made it into the New York Times. You know what I'm saying? Which is why I'm surprised that I was like at, at the end of it and Everything that you said is right about the letter. I totally agree and everything. I still found myself, at least emotionally, maybe not mm-hmm. ethically, but emotionally on Team Larson. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was surprised at like how easily I landed there. Yeah, but, yeah. But I guess that's just my own. I see it as a blue dress. So yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Mm-hmm. And I get it. I like. I very. I. I am. I'm also again inclined to be Team Larson. But I think that's also like so much a product of like my own social location too. Right. Like. Totally. I deal with not exactly Don Dorland, but like I deal with versions of we Don Dorland all the time. And so like she's um she's like not a particularly sympathetic character for yeah. me. Other especially if you're like, you know, a sensitive white woman, I could see how you would come off immediately being sympathetic to her. So yeah, fascinating. Just a fascinating and like, yeah, what it says about the world and also what it says about like the reader, basically. A fascinating piece. Yeah. I hope yeah. I hope readers have read it because that would have gone over a lot of people's heads right there. But totally, totally, totally. <laughs> That's so true. So true. Okay. Um, another thing we wanted to talk about this time. We wanted to talk about um specifically, I wanted to talk about the James Bond movie. Uh-huh. But then we both realized that we had like both taken our dads to see the James Bond movie. Yeah. So we actually want to talk about like taking our dads to the James Bond movie. It's yeah, it's a tradition for you. Without really knowing it, it's been a tradition for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's the perfect dad, take dad to the movies kind of movie. So, Do you also feel like there's like, it's like an Asian dad movie too, though? Because like, I feel like it's a very Asian dad, at least like- Tell me I, more, tell me more. So it's it came out, the series started in like 1967, yeah. I want to say. And so my dad was in high school, late high mm-hmm. school when he first saw it. And I feel like it really like, captured his imagination for like what life and masculinity was in the west honestly interesting and i mean in in 2021 eyes it's not great right yeah. it's violent it's womanizing it's alcoholic whatever but like i feel like it, it you know he's you know bond is dashing and debonair and well dressed and smooth you know what i mean like mm-hmm. powerful like i feel like um I feel like there's something about that that my dad was really drawn to. I I think this he's never said this, but that's my interpretation. Mm. And so, and I think that you know he he saw it at this like very formative time, and it captured his imagination. And like, um, you know, even at you know he's moved to the West, he has a life that's very very different from James Bond's. But I feel like it's still kind of this like Western masculine ideal, mm. and so he fucking loves it. Yeah. <laughs> and like it's got you know all the classic things that dads as you said like you know there's action and power and <laughs> quippy and like dad joke bad puns, bad puns. Um, but like i i think for my immigrant father like watching it as a teenager in taiwan it like it has like a little bit more like meaning than just like dad stuff you know what i mean I mean, everything you described as a draw for being Bond is like what drew me to it mm, too. Interesting. Like growing up. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. Like there is no, like I still, it took me a while to realize that you're not supposed to shake martinis. You're uh-huh. supposed to stir it. I thought since <laughs> Bond says to shake it, it must be the right way. It took me a long time to realize that the right way is to stir it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like, you know, I'm I'm always looking at suits and I'm like, oh, it has to fit like Bond if mm, it's Bond. Mm-hmm, I would love mm-hmm. to drive that Aston Martin, that uh-huh. roadster. You know, like all yeah. those things. It's like it definitely sets a template that's like very appealing. So I'm not sure to what, like I, I, I'm very compelled by this idea that a bunch of like you know, Asian fathers growing up when in their, you know, in their teens grew up of this as like their concept of the West. Um, so did your, like, what was your experience? Did you, did you, did your dad like the movie? Did you have a good time taking him? Like, what was your experience of? Yeah. So first of all, this, this is all within the context of this is our first movie, like for all of us, not even together, but all of us, it's our first movie in the movie theaters, uh, for at least a couple of years because Same. of the pandemic. Yeah. 
and it felt fantastic mm. you know like mm-hmm. of course we're all masked up and everything and you know it was a empty-ish theater which is great mm-hmm. um so just to be you know immersed again and you know seeing a movie it was like mm. and then all of us being together which is kind of a rare thing now mm. was just like a very positive thing yeah and then the movie itself i felt like because it was carrie fukunaga we were in good hands <sighs> yes and yeah it was like i i forgot actually when the movie started that he had directed it mm-hmm. and then as the movie was going the directorial style the cinematography was like, oh yeah, I dynamite. This is very careful, Kanaga. The pacing, yes. You know the the tracking shots, mm-hmm. the you know the closeness and how tight everything is. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, this is like, this is in the hands of a good director. Bond movies can be very very effective. You Delicious. Know? Yes, yes. Yes. Totally. Um, so I think we all enjoyed it. My dad thought it was really good. Yeah. Um. And yeah, we we were all surprised because it was like a two hour and thirty minute runtime. 245 baby oh my gosh almost titanic length oh my gosh so when we started the movie i was like um i don't even know if i can sit still for this legit but yeah but because of how well it was executed i thought it went by and it didn't feel like a two and a two hour 45 minute movie right agreed agreed so yeah what did you think how was your experience with your dad? Um, I mean, very similar. <laughs> yeah. This was a long time. I should mention that this was a long time coming because you had set the date. Yes. You were going to take your dad and then the pandemic happened. Yes, exactly. And it didn't happen until recently. Exactly. So Christmas 2019, I was like, I don't know what to get my immigrant parents. Like we've had podcast episodes about how hard it is, especially, you know, our, my immigrant parents, um, they've made it, they want for nothing and anything they, they want, they just buy. Right. So I was like, I live here now. So maybe the best thing that I can do for my parents is like, give them like meaningful time, which is hard to come by, especially because like, you know, whenever I'm with them, the kids are around, it's hard to have like quality time with just my parents. So um, for my dad, I was like, I'm going to take you to lunch and we're going to watch the Bond movie when it comes out in April um, because he fucking loves James Bond movies. <laughs> and then the world shut down in March. Yeah. <laughs> and then they kept push- pushing the release date back, which was fine with me because like we were playing it pretty cautious. And like uh, I even when my dad suggested it, I was like a little bit thrown because I was like, oh, like I don't think we're ready for movie theaters yet. But then, like, he was so fucking excited. And, like, my spouse and I were, like, we're both vaccinated. Like, we will we can double mask. Like, I think I think we can do it. So we did it. And I'm he was just so excited. Like, truly almost childlike. And <laughs> everybody so balked. It was so good. Everybody balked at this long-ass runtime, except my dad. He was like, I get to be James Bond for three hours. <laughs> were his exact words. That's adorable. And I was like, oh my, that, and which is why I was like, we kind of have to do this, right? Yeah. And it was opening weekend. Like he was clearly so excited. So we did it and it was delightful. And bless, bless my mom. Like she, because of the kids, we were like, we need to see, we can't, we need to see a 7.30 movie in order to get out before 10.30. <laughs> so she put the kids down. The three of us went out to the movie and it was it was lovely. Like, as you said, like, I haven't been in it. Like, we haven't seen a lot of movies since having kids, period. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, since the pandemic, it's been it's been two years. And um, I usually fall asleep around nine o'clock, no matter what I'm watching. But it moved really well. It did not feel like I didn't feel like it dragged at any point. Like, it, I didn't. Uh, there was no point when I was like, all right, we could keep going. I thought the storytelling was fantastic performances were great daniel craig is such a fucking good actor Mm -hmm. oh my god like and like such a contrast like how like kind of intentionally cheesy some previous uh bonds have been like just the depth of emotion and like the complexity of the character that he he injects like it's god it's he was really good i really enjoyed it imagine being in i'll just say one word about daniel craig Mm -hmm. imagine being given the keys to the bond franchise Mm. And the global expectation that that comes with. And then I remember, I still remember when he was cast and he was, you know, a relative unknown at the time. Right. And I remember thinking, oh man, he looks more like a Bond villain than Bond. Yes, for sure. For sure. He's like kind of menacing. Yeah. And he looked, you know, not like 
not classically suave, like, you know, as, and, and that's the thing you're, you're dealing with the previous bonds template mm-hmm. and you got to like either iterate or expand or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, as a relative unknown, you know, people probably expressed disappointment, probably like, you know, basically the cards were, the deck was stacked, mm-hmm. I think against him and for him to kind of come through and, you know, I, you know, for my money is one of the top two bonds, I think, that we've seen. Who's the other number one? Probably Sean Connery. Yeah, yeah. How can it not be? Yeah, yeah. Um, But that's like, you know, that's a pretty strong pantheon there, you know? Yeah, oh, for sure, for sure. And for you to come through, that's pretty remarkable, I think. Yeah. Like, Bond was such a two-dimensional character before him, right? Mm -hmm. Bond was just like, he just like killed people and he slept with beautiful women, like, Drank martinis. That was it, right? But like, I feel like he gave Bond like real anguish. Like he actually made him a complex person. And like, we got to see the consequences of living a life like this, which are not great, you know? Like, so yeah, I I just, I think he's a dynamite actor. I, I, I love like the interplay that he's had with every villain. Like all, I feel like the villains in, mm. since he's been, um since he's been Bond, I mean, they've cast dynamite actors, but like, yeah. Just like the raising of the game, right? Like Javier Bardem and Skyfall is like so fucking good. Just makes a meal out of every one of his scenes. And like Christoph Waltz is so good. Like, and I, I feel like you can only do that if you're playing against a great actor, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was fun. It was we had fun. A great time. Fun. Yeah. Um, shocking ending for me personally. Uh-huh. I don't want to blow anything. Um, but appropriate and beautiful and also kind of a commentary like a real commentary again on like what what happens when you live a life like this like what the consequences are so anyway i loved it and i heart i mean carrie fukunaga heart eyes all the heart eyes he's so beautiful and he's so talented damn you carrie fukunaga why god Anyway, well, I'm so glad. I'm so glad. And I just am so tickled that like your experience of this is so similar. Because- yes, taking our <laughs> bonding experience with our dad. Because, you know, my dad got to watch it. We watched it with my partner, my sister, who's now engaged, mm-hmm. and my mom. It was like a whole, it's the new family coming yeah. together for the first oh, time. Oh, fun. So nice. Yeah. Oh, I love that. And I love that you got to like introduce her to this like little family tradition. Totally. <laughs> oh, it's delightful. It's just so funny. Like I... I as as a as some for someone who consumes as much pop culture as I do, this shouldn't surprise me. But like, it's been really surprising to realize, like, in the last few months, like how much of my relationship with my dad is mediated over TV and movies, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's like, there's probably also some kind of commentary about masculinity and like male emotion and whatever. But like, um, this weekend we had the best time, like. We watched, um, we watched Always Be My Maybe with my dad, <laughs> which he loved. And he then loved we watched, okay. yeah, we watched Succession. And then like on Saturday, like we had college football on in the background all the time. And like, um, I think he just like likes having but everybody in one room yeah. and like making commentary about it is like how he feels connected to people, you know, yeah. and like. I guess, you know, maybe I guess on some layer, layer it, it could be sad that like it's hard for us to connect in any other way. But it's also like I it just it was just remarkable to be able to articulate that after 38 years that like, mm. oh, if I want a meaningful moment with my dad, like we should we should watch something. Yeah. You know, that's a subtle but really, really profound shift. Truly, truly. And like I was talking with my spouse with uh talking about this with my spouse later. Like usually like my brother and I were super social. Like we still have friends in the area. So like we're kind of in and out all day. You know what I mean? Like I'll duck out to see a friend while my kid is napping or in the evening my brother will go out to see his friends and like I, I obviously don't want to stop doing that. But like I, I just realized like my and my dad has never complained about that. Neither of my parents ever have. But I, I realized that like this time when we're just like at home watching movies is like incredibly meaningful for him and so i should maybe make more of an effort to protect it you know yeah especially because like you know he's getting fucking old and all this stuff about our parents aging is like so like hard and weird and so yeah just like making that more of a priority um you know just like i i it's it's just like kind of like reoriented 
how I relate to my parents or to my dad a little bit. Wow. That's a lovely thought. So anyway. (laughs) And I'm sure you're not alone. I'm sure there's like tons of families. Um, In particular, I think this could be a very particular thing to like immigrant families where, you know, this kind of breaches the the language gap. Yeah. No, that's such a good point. That's such a good point. Yeah. Yeah. And like a lot of the stuff that we watch together, it's like there's this and we watch sports. We watch football and figure skating and um yeah that's a really good point it breaches like it it, a lot of the cultural gaps get bridged yeah with this kind of stuff so anyway so this is actually a really good segue into our top five for this week which is the greatest joys from the smallest pleasures that's right and i'm i'm wondering just how small your joys are (laughs) And how big your pleasure is from them. Because mine, I think, can be quite trivial. Oh, that's great. Like really, really small joys. I love that. I, I can't wait to hear. And what I love here is that there's truly an, an infinite universe of possibilities. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. So the odds of us overlapping, I think, are maybe fairly small. Very small. Yeah. So I'm excited to hear. Um, why don't you go first, Liz? Okay. My number five is candles. <laughs> I am probably turning into a middle-aged mom cliche, but I recently discovered the joy of candles. And yo, uh, everything smelling nice yeah. really improves your quality of life. Big pro. So scented candles. Yes, yes. Yeah. I should I should specify. Um it's I've never been a candle person before. I like never really understood why people why like white women especially were so into them. But it's just nice to have a pleasant aroma floating around and like it's warm and it provides ambiance and I get it. Um, All the things. Yes. And I have to say my gateway into candles was Trader Joe's has these like seasonal scented candles and I'm a Trader Joe's sucker. Uh enthusiast is not even the right word because I just like see shit. They have new shit all the time. And I always, I almost always buy it because I'm curious. Um, and they had this mango tangerine candle uh, a few summers ago. And I was like, that seems interesting. And I kept it on the shelf. And then they had a grapefruit one a few weeks later and then like a peach black tea one. And I was like, these all seem great. Uh, things I could get into. And now that I've started using them, I'm like, oh, this is delightful. It just makes working such a pleasant experience to have this be pleasant in the toil of work. (laughs) So that's a plug for candles. Also a plug for Trader Joe's because they are cheap. And the mango tangerine one is a direct knockoff of Anthropology's volcano candle at a fraction of the price. So it's only available for like a few weeks every year. But now that I know this, I am fucking buying out that whole shelf next time because a volcano candle is like, I don't know, $14, but this one was like $3.99. So that is a major life hack right there. Yo, God bless Trader Joe's and their scentologists for cracking that code. Okay. My number four is a rainbow of literally anything. So I have always been very animated by color. I think that's like just like an extrovert thing. Like, uh, yeah, just being uh, stimulated by color, by bright colors, loud noises, whatever. Um, so a set of anything in rainbow order delights me, whether it is pencils or plates or pants, literally anything. If it is a full set in rainbow order, it looks complete and it is deeply satisfying and delighting to me. Show me a rainbow of anything and I, I, I mm, it's like a big hug for my eyeballs. Uh, my number three is the In-N-Out Burger. Wow. In terms of cost to joy ratios. You got it exactly right. I love the direction you're going, but yes, there is truly nothing that delivers a higher joy to cost ratio than an In-N-Out Burger. What is it now? You've probably had one much more recently than I have. It's like $2.50, $3. How much is an In-N-Out burger? Well, I usually get the meal. So I'm oh. not sure how much the burger it is, but okay. it's probably like $3.50, $2.50 to $3.50. Okay. Like I think. But the joy that comes from that perfect burger 
that spongy bread, the caramelized onions, which the grilled onions is the way to go, the play all day when it comes to these burgers. Like I, it, I just can't like, I would eat, I, I, I no longer have access to an In-N-Out, which is one of the saddest things about living in the Midwest. But like, I would remember just eating them and just being like, I do not know of anything that could make me happier right now in terms of food. Um, okay. My number two, uh, very seasonal autumn leaves. Oh my God. There are two weeks every fall in Michigan where I am overwhelmed by how beautiful they are because the trees here are just ablaze. It is stunning. And it's like, I can't believe this is real. And I can't believe this is so beautiful. And this is just life. Right. And like, I, I, I want to like, I want to, um, like hold on to this moment for as long as I can. So I like try to collect as many perfect leaves as I can. But then what happens is they dry out and then they crumble and it becomes this very existential thing where you realize that nothing beautiful lasts forever. Oh man, that's, that got really deep. Yo, fall is very existential. But anyway, um, so not only are they like just stunning, truly stunning, mind blowing to look at, but they're also so crunchy. And I, get so much satisfaction out of walking through crunchy leaves. I also feel this way about acorns, which also fall in the fall. And I don't know what it says about me, but that I take such satisfaction out of like trampling things underfoot, but like just the sound and the the feeling of the crunch. It's so good. So truly like, thank you. Thank you for validating this. So like autumn leaves, man, they just, they get like, it's like a multi-sensory experience. Um, Okay. So that's my number two. And my number one, is um my children's laughter and there is like no way to talk about this without sounding completely cliche but it is fucking transcendent um especially when they're making each other laugh which was happening a lot after dinner today and i just like it's just like i they're just it's like the happiest moment of my of moments of my life honestly like the fact that like they're happy in this moment and like my spouse and I are so lucky that like we've been be- able to create a happy home for them and like we get to participate in this like it's like honestly overwhelming. Oh. And I remember when my older kid was born like I used to almost like emotionally like pull away when he laughed because I was worried that I would like burst into tears that I would be like overwhelmed by it because it was the sound was like so beautiful. Oh. And now I'm like a little bit more acclimated but it's still like transcendent it is transcendent the greatest pleasure the great greatest joy from the smallest pleasure i mean that's that's like pretty much the definition okay that's gonna make the rest of my list sound ridiculous but (laughs) (laughs) but but i'm gonna give you this tender moment um there's no way to transition so i'm just gonna go right into it so basically i can't wait to hear i'm gonna go from children's laughter to my number five which is perfectly sized Tupperware. Oh, yes. So Delightful. The, the key is here, you have to have multiple Tupperware of different sizes mm-hmm. and shapes mm-hmm. so that when you cook a dinner with, you know, a good number of leftovers, like awkward amounts and like big amounts, that moment when all that variety of food gets tucked away in the perfectly sized Tupperware. Mm. And and not only that, you have it on hand, but you gauge it correctly. Yes, you pick, yes, you eyeball it correctly. It's so satisfying. You feel like a professional. Mm-hmm. A professional food storer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then you click on that Tupperware. Mm. You put it in the fridge. You look at it for a quick second just to be like, that was really nice. <laughs> It's a satisfying thing. It's hard to explain. Yeah, I I I totally get it. When you what when what you have perfectly matches what you need, I mean, fabulous. Perfect. And it's the gauging part. It's like the one where you're like, I think that's the right size. But on the flip side, nothing feels worse than misgauging. Oh no, and then you've dirtied an extra dish. Oh an extra dish. You've gone too far. Or on the flip side, this actually bothers me more surprisingly, is that you pick a Tupperware that's too big for the thing. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Wasted real estate. To, yeah. It's yep. just complete. It's just, it, it's it's roaming around. It has too much space to yeah, roam around. And then it's like, I could be using that space for something else. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Now I feel that. Takes up too much, you know, room and real estate in the fridge. It's all. Yeah. And in my mind. <sighs> exactly. Yeah. I shudder just thinking about it. 
Um, number four is kind of tied to your leaves, but to me, as a Californian, is the sound of rain. Mm, um, so good. We don't get a lot of rain, as you know, in California. Every time it does, we pause. Uh, I pause to just listen. Mm. And now that I'm on the East Coast and we get it like frequently, I just I open the window so I can hear it. Mm-hmm. I love Such that. Such a soothing. Yeah, I think it's the same feeling I get with fall leaves as well. So yeah, delightful. Um, number three, fresh bed sheets. Sleeping. Oh, so in fresh good. Bed oh sheets. my god, yes. you've na- you've totally nailed this list. Yes. Um, how often? This might be a sensitive question. How often do you change your bed sheets? Not often enough. Yeah. I hear I'm supposed to be washing them every week. That's well. I mean, some people say that. Other people say that it's going to wear out your sheets too much if you do oh, it that often. Oh, no, okay. Well, that makes me. That's that's what I'm going to say as my justification for the fact that I don't wash them as much as I should. <laughs> yeah. No. I mean, I'm guilty. I'm more on the don't wash them enough camp until recently. Uh huh. Someone said a week every week, and I'm like, what? And yeah. I'm confused. So I think I'm like once a month or once every two weeks kind of person. Mm-hmm. No. Yeah. I would say once a month. Mm-hmm. Is that too too few? No, I think that's good. Okay. Maybe more in the summer. Um, but there's no feel, better feeling than actually having, because it is a hassle, right? Unsheeting the bed and then putting yeah, it in the laundry. Yeah, it's so much. Oh my God, it's so much work. sheeting it up, like a new pair. I think that's the key though, is like having backup pairs so that once you take off the old ones, you have new ones ready to go. Yes. Um, but yeah, that night when you crawl into like fresh bed, bed sheets, it was worth it. it oh, was worth the that is, yeah, that's so true. That's so true. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, All right. Mm-hmm. Number two. Mm-hmm. I love making to-do lists and then crossing off items. Oh, that I thought about putting that one on my list because what is more satisfying than crossing oh, off the thing? Crossing it off. And then, okay, there. let's be real. There are fake... To do items where you just you just put them on because you know you're gonna you could just cross it off. You need an easy win. You need an easy one, and mm-hmm. those are important. Mm-hmm. But the the most satisfying ones are legit to do items mm-hmm. that take you know energy to do, and then yeah. you finish it and you cross it off. Yeah, I agree. That's why that's like one of the harder things about um, moving everything electronic. Because I just delete them off my list now, and then I it don't see them, and yeah. I no longer see the reward of all the shit that I've gotten done. All I see is all the things that are left to be done, which is already kind of how I'm wired to think anyway, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I do it all on paper. I oh, mean, you see, this yeah. is I, I, I totally understand. Not I totally the luddite wins in this situation. <laughs> so I have my moleskins. I had probably oh, like moleskins. maybe like six of them that are filled with to-do lists and filled with accomplished tasks chris yeah 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 oh that's that's so good that's That's so good oh my god that's so good and i i use a g2 pen the pen is important we could have a whole discussion on favorite pens um but i know i see that you're team g2 that's good to know yeah g2 g2 works for me i'm not saying it's the best pen but it's the perfect amount of ink Mm. and it Provides a nice like sound when I cross off an oh, item on nice. my list. Nice. Oh man, multi-sensory experience. Yes. So G2 good. Pen, That's to-do good. To-do list cross off. Nice. Number one, it may not be the sound of children laughing, um, <laughs> but it is the first sip of coffee in the morning. Oh, and I know, that's good. I know you're not a coffee drinker. Um, no, but I get it. But that that thing is what. That's the only thing that can get me out of bed. Uh-huh. You know. <laughs> Is the hope and, you know, and it's shocking to me that it happens every day. Oh, yeah. It's a divine. Yeah. Necessary process. Yeah. Delightful. Chris, that was a great list. I loved it. And I loved the range that we covered of, uh, yeah. There are so many ways to get great joy from small pleasures. And I'm glad that we spent some time attending to that today. Yes. Children laughing. My children specifically. Um, what should we talk about next time? Well, you know, we've been talking about pop culture for so so much the last couple episodes um, mm-hmm. that we want to bring back, which was, I, I think it's probably my favorite top five topic, and mm-hmm. it's the first time that we're repeating a top five category because we loved it so much. Uh-huh. We're bringing back 
top five celebrity crushes. Yes. Actually, this could be the third time we're doing it because we did same-sex celebrity you crushes. You are so right. Is <laughs> this like the third time we're talking about celebrity crushes? But we you know what? We have found as many opportunities as we can to, to <laughs> and as many iterations as we can because what this is the original top five in, in many is, ways, right? It's the OG. Yeah. I can't wait. It's a shameless hook to get yeah. more people <laughs> listening to our podcast. I love it. All right, friend, this was fun. It was fun. Let's do it again. See you in two weeks.